Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, it's time for the Negative Positives Podcast, coming to you live out of the Gutter Man Cave in beautiful Louisville, Kentucky. And now, here are your hosts, Andre Dominguez and Mike Gutterman. Hello and welcome to the Negative Positives Podcast, episode number 178. I'm your host, Mike Gutterman, coming to you from the Gutterman Cave on a Sunday night, which that means, uh, you know, it's a Sunday night, always a very special episode. This one's uh, going to be a little different just because uh, just the way we just decided to structure this one, and we don't actually have a guest tonight, but in a way we sort of do, but we'll explain that in a, a little bit later. But we do have everyone's favorite co-captain is finally back on the show. I think a lot of people have forgotten his name. People have been calling him uh, Andy or Andrew, but uh, <laughs> but uh, Mr. Andre Dominguez is finally back with us on the show. How are you doing tonight, Andre? Doing well, Mike. Back in the land of the living. Regained my voice after <laughs> you know losing it. Uh, a little scare of, of you know trying to determine whether or not I was coming down with you know strep throat or the flu. Uh, you know, right during this period in between. Uh, midterms and thanksgiving when it's just group projects galore so uh yeah it's 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 been a while i've missed the podcast i've missed all of you and i've been trying to you know stay relatively active on the um on the facebook group just to just to make sure that you guys don't don't forget who i am <laughs> nice but it is very good to be back <laughs> well it's good to have you back and uh you know it's funny uh i've been fighting voice issues as well and uh I'm, I, I don't think my voice is in all that good of shape tonight either because uh <clears throat> last night um I was out in the night air all night long because we had some friends over and did a little fire pit and a little partying and i think the partying and the night side uh, night side outside night air has kind of uh, put me right back to where I started with my voice so the good thing is uh, as far as me and Andre's part this might be a little less talking for us tonight because we have a special thing we're going to put on the end of the show but again that's it we'll call it a teaser we'll be back uh, to tell you more about that later when we get ready to wrap this thing up but uh, right now I guess it's the first segment so we have to talk about our weeks so uh, uh, Andre um, since uh what have you been up to in the last month since you've been on the show so uh <laughs> well i mean i'm not gonna go all the way uh you know back that <laughs> far but m- most recently um i some of you in the in the negative positives film photography podcast facebook group may have seen that a uh, a listener of the a relatively new listener of the show adrian doyle who hails from uh, the very, very wonderful country of Ireland um, recently started, uh, you know, listening and posted a picture in the Facebook group of um, an image that I've seen many, many times. It's this big uh, mural of, of Chapel Hill that sits outside of He's Not, which is a, you know, a local little dive bar here in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And as soon as I saw the the image, I, I think I commented on it saying. You know, are you saying that you know you you live in the in the same sleepy little college town as your 
uh, hopefully favorite co-host of the Negative Positives podcast. Um, so just with that, uh, we ended up talking online and, um, you know, he's a solid guy, uh, lives out here in Chapel Hill, works in, in RTP, the Research Triangle Park, um, and we ended up getting uh, getting breakfast at a, a local... Ah, how how would I even kind of describe it? It's sort of a, I think it's called Sutton's Drugstore, um, but it's kind of this really old school uh, diner type uh, place <laughs> that has um, these like this wall of all like uh, you know these wacky sodas and a, a thing in the center with like. Like old school saltwater taffy, uh, um, and a good like you know diner style restaurant in the back. Um, the walls and like the ceilings are just covered in um, photos of the customers that they've printed, and so I I felt very embarrassed telling Adrian that it was my first time at Sutton's, even though it's on like our main street hmm. there, and it's you know it's a it's a mainstay of Franklin Street on Chapel Hill, but I, I'll definitely be be going back now um but yeah it was great to to meet adrian and his and his wife we you know talked an equal amount of just uh you know college life here in in unc as well as um you know some film photography uh you know showed off a, a little bit of, of what i had uh brought that day my my m6 and my my roloflex he has a, a very nice condition Canon AE-1 that he bought from Southeastern and is currently getting all of his film developed and, and scanned there, uh, which is awesome to hear. Um, him and his wife are going to be heading down to uh, Disney in Orlando in the not-too-distant future, and he's got a role of T-Max P3200 uh, to take along with him, which should be super cool to see what he gets out of it. Um, as soon as we were uh, done with, uh, with breakfast... Um, I actually went on a trip to a local farm. Uh, it was a, an, a community event for my scholarship program, uh, mainly consisting of, you know, the first years and, and sophomores, a few upperclassmen as well. But kind of the, the purpose was to try to, you know, build bonds between the, the members of different classes and scholars on, on both campuses, UNC and, and Duke. Um, and it was at this farm that is well known during the fall for its pumpkin carving and uh, um, goats. And <laughs> the funny thing about this place, uh, I don't think I've posted the, the images on the Facebook group yet, but I have sent them uh, in, in private messages to Mike, is that you know it's not like oh, a little petting area for the goats and then some, some picnic tables where you or in like a pumpkin patch and the picnic tables where you carve the pumpkins. The whole kind of draw to this uh, particular farm out here in uh, in near Chapel Hill, North Carolina, is the fact that they let the goats loose in the areas where you you carve your pumpkin, <laughs> and so the goats jump on top of the tables and are like you know eating the the, the pumpkin guts that you're like scraping out of the of the things. Uh, they're very very mischievous animals, and so I've got some great shots of. You know, uh, my my friends, my fellow Robertson scholars, sort of fighting off goats that are sticking their heads inside the the <laughs> holes of the of the pumpkins as they're you know trying to make their jack o' lanterns. Um, and I decided to shoot 
this entire event all on slide film. I had um, two rolls of Provia 100F in medium format in the Rolleiflex, and uh, I think three rolls of the uh, new Ektachrome in uh, 35 millimeter. So developed them all uh, late last night and uh, spent you know a little bit today uh, scanning the the medium format, which I, I really don't mind uh, scanning medium format in the Epson V600, but uh, it is an absolute pity that I can't do slide film in the pack on because three rolls of you know 35 millimeter uh, I, I I just really didn't have the patience to to scan it, but I did sadly notice that um, I had not super badly, but like. I, I had kind of underexposed the the ectochrome, um, mm. which I thought was kind of weird, since you know for the for the most part uh, I was using both a combination of the in camera meter in my M6 as well as uh, handheld Sekonic meter, and I was checking the um, you know what the meters were giving me kind of against each other, but despite that the ectochrome still came out a little bit underexposed. Huh. Um, which is which is fine. I'm out of slide mounts right now, actually. So, and my intention wasn't to mount these, but just to keep them in the in the strips themselves in the print file. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm sure that they're gonna scan fine. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, kind of the same thing uh, with you know just scanning in in general. A, a denser negative is even with with slide film is easier to scan. I mean, if you if you blow out the highlights with slide film, you can't get you can't get information out of them. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, that was that was my week. Some some fun with slide film, uh, meeting a, a listener of the podcast, and uh, getting my voice back. So, <laughs> what about you, Mike? What you got? Well, let me know if you have any comments about what yeah, I've been uh, saying. <laughs> well, it's it's kind of it's kind of unfortunate that you just meet this person, you know, that is also a film shooter in your area, and it's like your last semester of college when you when you run into this person. But uh, dude, he's been here for like I think eight years now, if I wow. remember correctly. He's wow. only just now starting to get into film photography and just started listening to the to the podcast. But oh, yeah, cool. I. I you know, I I thought that he was like new to the area. I said, "Oh, well, how long have you guys been out here?" And he said, "About seven, eight years now." <laughs> I was like, "Oh, okay. Well, never mind." <laughs> well, better late than never, I guess. So yeah, but yeah, uh, and then I saw your photos you'd sent uh, uh, through. I guess it was Facebook Messenger of your of your pumpkin carving thing. And uh, yeah, you're right. Those man, those goats, they go all in, man. Like they put their whole head inside the pumpkin. Like, and, oh yeah. Uh, which I mean, I've always heard goats will eat anything because, and that must be true if they'll eat those pumpkin guts because those always just kind of. Uh, kind of gross me out a little bit <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah they uh, they kind of went crazy for that <laughs> <laughs> no it was uh yeah, it was uh interesting but um as far as the the ectochrome being underexposed i you know, i mean i would assume I, I think i've got this right slide film it's actually a little better if you underexpose it rather than overexpose it i believe so i, I think you you should be fine, right? I mean, underexposure is a little better with slide film because I know if you overexpose, you can really blow it out and and like lose uh, yeah lose it easy pretty easy. So, and my I, I looked at it on my light table, and you know my light table you can adjust the brightness, and so um, you know just kind of pumping up the the brightness and, and shining more light through those slightly underexposed um, slides, you could you know you could actually 
you could see that you can get more detail out of it yeah. that way. So I assume that it's going to be the same with the the scanner. My my previous attempts at, at shooting and, and developing slide film at home have yielded uh, kind of better exposed negatives in the past. So I haven't really had to deal with that yet. Mm -hmm. um, but then like a couple of shots that definitely like must have like moved the the dial by accident or or something. Um, and that I did overexpose, like, yeah, you can tell that, you know, it's, it's basically, it's completely clear and you're not going to get any information out of that. So. Yeah. Yeah. Nice. All right. So my projector actually does have a little, um, switch on it where you can increase the brightness of the bulb a little bit so that if you are choosing to project, um, the slides and you have like maybe one or two that are slightly underexposed, you can just set it to the brighter setting and it, it's not a lot brighter but it, it can help a little bit you know yeah help a little bit well, that's cool yeah all right um well let's see my week's been a little less productive i guess i, I mean i did i didn't really take a whole lot of photos i took some photos a day um i was supposed to be completing this this damn sunny 16 cheap shots challenge the theme is fine art and I, if i don't get it done tomorrow it's, it's probably not going to happen <laughs> but but uh yeah so I was it supposed makes you to do feel that. any better. I've yet to complete and submit photos for any cheap shots challenge. <laughs> it's it's pretty fun. Uh, even though the last one, uh, I mean, uh, Graham roasted me pretty hard about my photo last time. So, uh, but, <laughs> but but that's fine. That's fine. I, I expect. I, I know it's uh, it's just because he loves me, and it's out of, out of love that he, he he's hard on us. So I just we're just gonna go with that. But uh, but yeah, I do want to try to to do it. I enjoy it. It's 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 really fun to try to uh, be challenged. Uh, uh, and try to shoot a theme with a camera that's maybe not the most uh, uh, adept at doing that type of photography. That's actually when I first, the very first challenge I did on it, I, I had found a, a Pentax SLR, like a 90s autofocus SLR. And I'd started doing the challenge with that because I got it for under the price of the challenge price of the $20 or 20 pounds or whatever they, that they want you to spend. And I, I, was, I was within that, that budget. But I just felt like I was cheating, you know, because it was like an SLR is a very versatile camera. So it was like it was making it a little too easy. And I think to me, it was like a kind of against the whole uh, theme of their challenge. So I ended up switching to like a five dollar Pentax 90s compact, you know, 35 millimeter point and shoot to uh, to do the challenges with just because I, I want it to be a challenge to kind of. Uh, make it hard to use a, a camera that's maybe not well suited for some of these things and try to make it work for whatever the, the subject is. So uh, that's just the way I've kind of approached it. But so all you people out there shooting the cheap shots challenge uh, with SLRs are cheating. So I'm just telling you that right now, but, uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it doesn't as... go with, the, with the spirit of the cheap shots challenge. If you manage to snag like a, you know, a, I mean, well, I mean, even like a K 1000, like, that's yeah, a, that's a solid, you know, system with great lenses. Right, and honestly, if you're able to get a K1000 or some sort of SLR for under 20 pounds, or what ends up being like 25, 26 US dollars, or whatever, that's not necessarily a cheap shots ch challenge camera. That's more like a holy shit, I got lucky and got a bargain challenge. You know, it's like it's kind of a, uh, to me that's what that that would be uh, more uh, suited for, I guess. But uh, so I did I did take some photography today, even though it wasn't my cheap shots challenge uh, entries. I uh, the, uh, the family uh, we went to this this church right outside of our, our neighborhood has a uh, what they call a harvest homecoming thing. It's uh, kind of like their Halloween celebration, but they won't call it a Halloween celebration because they're a church and and they're not down with that 
that devil, that devil's holiday. So, uh, uh, so it was like called a harvest festival or whatever. And, um, so yeah, we went there and the kids got to play some games and, uh, get some candy and getting these gigantic inflatables. So I got a couple of shots with my, uh, some family shots with my, um, my Nikon, uh, APS SLR, of course, because, you know, as everyone knows, the APS revival is catching on and, and taking over the world by storm. And, and I could tell that the people there knew that when they saw me with my APS SLR that I was definitely one of the cool kids. And uh, that was very, very apparent. And uh, so, yeah, so I got a little little APS shots in the day. And then as far as the, the rest of my week, I've spent some money this week. Uh, <laughs> and so... I got uh, off eBay, this guy was selling these uh, really cool, like, vintage-looking, uh, has, like, the vintage Tri-X uh, box uh, on a T-shirt. And uh, uh, it's, like, just the, the logo of an old Tri-X box, uh, uh, film box. So uh, I had to buy that. So I got that in the mail yesterday, and it's, it's pretty awesome. And then also I, I made my first order with uh, Photo Warehouse, uh, Ultrafine Online. And I finally ordered a 100-foot roll of the... Uh, uh, ultra fine extreme 400 because i've talked in the past i wanted to to get that just so i could i could kind of guilt-free uh load like 10 shot 15 shot rows and not feel bad about you know trying to uh squeeze every dollar out of that 100 foot roll of film because it's so cheap it's like 35 bucks for 100 foot so i don't feel any guilt about kind of rolling some short rows with that uh with that particular price range so so i got that coming i don't haven't received it yet but it's been shipped and I also ordered some, you know, they have a lot of uh, really strange uh, Kodak black and white uh, movie films. And uh, even some, a couple that I haven't even seen on the FPP, or maybe the FPP has had them at some point, but they uh, hadn't seen them recently. But So I ordered a couple of weird, uh, maybe like six rows, three of each. There was two types, and I bought three of each. Uh, some really weird, like 25 ISO uh, Kodak black and white movie films and uh, I'm going to give that a shot one of them is supposed to be pretty uh, uh, high contrast so uh, kind of looking forward to seeing how that comes out and uh, hey, yeah. Mike, yeah isn't it approaching winter yes it is it is yeah mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and you just bought 25 ISO films <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah I, I think did. your I, I, I think <laughs> your, your biological clock <laughs> is messed up <laughs> <laughs> well, being a, being a night shifter, my biological clock's always messed up. So, uh, yeah, fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> but it's um, actually pretty interesting. Is that like I am considering selling to my local camera store my bulk loader because I just haven't bulk loaded in a long time oh, or yeah? felt the inclination to do so. Like hmm. I haven't been shooting that much Tri-X or HP5 or you know any of the of the stocks that you know, people commonly buy in, in those bulk quantities. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm like, I don't think we have any at the store and um, I don't know. I might consider selling mine. We'll see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, for as little as you'd get out of it, I would say you probably should just keep it, man. Like, uh, I know you're in, uh, maybe you're in a purge mode right now, but in a couple of weeks you'll be out of your purge mode, and then you'll be wishing you hadn't gotten rid of it. I mean, of course, I guess if you did get rid of it, they're 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 cheap. You can get them for pretty cheap on eBay and stuff like that. So you could always pick another one up. But yeah, it's a uh, uh, I don't know. I mean, I haven't done a, a ton of it, but I do like the ideal with this ultra fine, and I've shot one roll of that already that someone had given me. I think uh, either John Gregory gave me some of that, or maybe it was Sean Nelson. Somebody gave me a roll of it, and. Uh, I shot it in 
Finlay, Ohio, and really liked it. So, uh, I mean, I don't think it's going to become my main stock or anything, but it is nice to have a cheap uh, 400 ISO black and white film that, hey, I got a new camera. I just want to maybe shoot like 10 shots, make sure it works, you know, and be able to just throw like a 10 shot roll in it and use that stuff. Right. And I think it's going to be really good for that kind of that kind of that kind of thing. But um, and then yeah, fine. see, I'm I'm in this mode right now where I'm like, you know, prepping for high cost of living LA life and like <laughs> looking for apartment stuff and, and uh, it's just kind of stressing me out yeah. where I'm like purging a lot of stuff and, and saving up and you know with the consideration that I already was considering making uh, you know BWXX one of my my mainstay uh, black and white films, especially with how sunny it is in oh, yeah. in Southern California. I don't particularly feel like I need um, you know 400, 400 speed yeah. uh, film, and I, I'm definitely not going to be pushing it to 1600 like I have to do here. Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that also I won't have to pay for a roll or two occasionally. <laughs> um, that that is a consideration. Oh yeah, yeah. And and the the double spend the rest of my money on Ectochrome. <laughs> <laughs> and the double X, I mean, it 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 does work real well. I, I've shot at four hundred though, because I've shot it at four hundred. I really like the way that that came out. But you'll probably never. Yeah, I've pushed to do that. it. I've pushed it to eight hundred, and I love it. Oh yeah, I haven't sh- I haven't pushed it to eight hundred yet, but I'm looking forward. I haven't to pushed it any past that. Yeah, I've seen. Uh, someone sent me an email with a shot that uh, where they'd pushed it to sixteen hundred, and it looked great. So it seems to push really well. So. Uh, yeah, it's some, something I want to experiment with a little bit. And, and that's another reason not to get rid of your bulk loader. Of course, I guess it really doesn't matter for you with the Cinesteel connection. But, uh, but yeah, but for me, like at the bulk loading comes in handy for the getting the double X and the 100-foot rows at FPP cells and, and stuff like that is kind of, uh, kind of nice uh, for, that, for that particular film because it can, it can definitely save you some money on it uh, compared to the people. For sure, that, yeah. That, yeah if, you, if you really, really like it and you know that you're going to be shooting – Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of it, the the hundred foot rolls from the FPP is a great deal. Yeah, yeah, it is, and uh, and I love that film. So I, I eventually, if once ever once I stop buying all this damn film, it's kind of wanting I'm wanting to make it one of my main stocks, but I can't stop buying new films. So, <laughs> but uh, I mean, you've is seen alcohol my... <laughs> involved in any of these transactions, Mister Betterman? Uh, yeah, yeah, probably, probably, yeah, yeah. But because uh, you, you've seen, I mean, Andre, you've seen my film fridge or uh, fridge and freezer. It's uh, it's I've got enough to get me through. A a couple of years of shooting at this point. <laughs> well, you need you need to do what what I did, Mike. I, I made a, a bet with you know uh, good friends uh, Chris Bartolucci and, and Chris Visser um, that I was not going to buy any cameras uh, for a year. <laughs> right. And so far, I've stuck to that. And yeah, looking yeah. at like the things that I want in the not too distant future, uh, <laughs> right now, none of them are cameras. And in fact, I'm getting rid of more stuff. I'm actually. As I'm looking now, like I'm, I'm looking at my Fujifilm GW690 and being like, oh, maybe that could go as well. <laughs> uh, I did a little, you know, comparison the other day between my uh, Summicron Rigid and my, you know, collapsible screw mount Elmar uh, that I use on my 3F, and you know, I kind of like using the Elmar more than I do the Summicron, so I could let go of that and. Mm-hmm. You know, that may or may not be going to some non-camera time-related purchases. (laughs) Uh, 
but Mike, but Mike, but Mike, but Mike, they are vintage watches that I'm after. Oh, I see. Uh, Does that yeah. make it any better? Uh, not really. Not really. No, no. But, uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, all these watches, Andre, I mean, just think of the, I mean, if you want to be with the cool kids, man, you just got to get you an, you can spit that on a whole APS uh, system over and over again, all the APS film you could have bought. But instead, you're, you know, this watch thing, it's not catching on like the APS revival is. I mean, it's just, it's. I have a legit question for you, though, Mike. Do they make, like, fully mechanical, like, like things that somebody would actually give a shit about servicing uh, APS cameras? Or it is all kind of, or are they all kind of, like, bullshit point and shoots that are going to die? <laughs> Just like the format's gonna die. Uh, no, no, uh, it's uh, they don't. But uh, that's just because you know uh, it's uh, yeah, it's kind of the way the film was made. There's absolutely no way they could do a mechanical camera with it because it, it actually feeds uh, has to have a, a, a you know a power fed <laughs> drive system. So, uh, but yeah, but I mean that's that's all right. I mean it's it's it doesn't make the the process any any more you know. Well, I mean it's like your mechanical any watch less thing. enjoyable. Right. Well, it's like your mechanical watch thing. I mean, yeah, they're they're precision pieces of 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 wonderment and all that. But if you think about it, an old battery quartz uh, watch is uh, actually more accurate than the mechanical watch. So just say, just you know just uh, just throwing that yeah, out no, there. Yeah, for sure. I own quartz <laughs> watches. I I like you know my quartz watches uh but that being said the same way that one day i would like to give my my m3 my roloflex uh to my my kids or, or grandkids or whatever there's something about the the fact that you know i could give my mechanical watches to uh to posterity as well yeah, and that's all yeah. i'll say about that because i can already <laughs> feel the future <laughs> listeners rolling their eyes i know that i have i know that i have a few um you know supporters uh in in our little community in, in this mechanical uh watch world so you know for those for those humble few thank you for your support during this uh <laughs> The, the war between APS and watches. <laughs> uh, well, and then uh, the last thing about my week, I'll just do this real quick. Is I, I had the, I did a face cast on this. Uh, I guess it was Friday or well, Saturday morning when I got off work. Uh, I've been liking to do like a little uh, have a good weekend face cast and uh, uh, so, and usually drink a couple of beers when I get off work on Friday night. So uh, I put one up this uh, this week. It was about the uh, the Yashica or Yashica uh, Electro 35 that I got free from one of the artists at the uh, at the art fair. Uh, uh, their, one of their parents or something, I think it was a parent or uncle or something, had passed away and had been sitting around forever. And so she gave me this camera, and uh, it looks like minty. I mean, it's super nice condition. So I thought, well, this thing's surely going to work. Well, it, it, I couldn't get any power to it. And um, so I took it apart, and I did find a wire that going to the, to the top of the battery uh, – cylinder sort of uh it goes up to the um up to the uh shit i can't think of anything tonight. circuit board uh there was a wire that had come loose so i was like well cool that that's probably my problem re uh, in a, another wire there and um so then i was like and i even took my multimeter out and tested i was getting uh getting con uh, continuity from the from the battery compartment to the, the circuit board so everything there should have been good still wasn't getting any power so i was like well let me let me put this thing back together and see maybe if I can just, if it's something inside the battery compartment, because I was using kind of a smaller battery. I was like, well, I probably need to 
find some better way to rig this battery up where it'll make contact better. It's probably it's probably my problem. So let me put this camera back together. So I go to put it back together and the the battery cap has like this little metal part on the inside of the battery cap as part of the part of the connection. And it just completely disintegrated off the bot off the the top of the battery cap. And uh so that's a problem. But I, I could probably get a new battery cap somewhere. So that, that wouldn't concern me as much. But then to take the top plate off I had to uh, take like some snap ring pliers and you have these two little tiny uh, holes that you put them in there and unscrew this tiny tiny little like screw that takes off the ISO uh, control uh, the selector for ISO and I got it off fine it came off really easy but that sucker is not going back on and I don't know if it's stripped I mean it's acting like a strip but I don't see how it's stripped because it came off so easy it's not like I you know really had to dig in on it to get it off there or anything so I don't know what's going on but I can't get the ISO uh, uh, control dial back <laughs> installed on the camera so I may have to just I'm, I'm just about ready to give up on this thing it's I mean it was a free camera I really wanted to, to save it but uh, I'm kind of at my wits end I, I don't I don't have to fix these two issues other than maybe buying a, a broken one on the uh, on the eBay or whatever and, and, and trying to salvage some parts off that or something but I, I don't know if I want to go through all that trouble I'm, I had an Electro 35 back in the day and it was fun, you know, but uh, I, I sold it for one reason or another, probably in my digital dark ages or whatever. But uh, I don't remember particularly loving the camera, but I did like it. And for free, I was going to, I was super excited to get it, but it's apparently, I don't know. It's just, I don't know if I'm going to put that much, that much effort, that much more effort into it. But so if anybody has any advice, have these two problems on the Electro 35, I'm, I'm, I'm all ears. Feel free to hit me up and, <laughs> and see if anybody else has run into these issues or has any ideas, or hey, if, uh, if somebody fixes them and, and thinks they can get this thing uh, running, just uh, hit me up and I'll send it to you and you can have it and fix it yourself and have yourself an Electro 35 because I certainly am at, I'm at the, the end of my abilities with it. So anybody wants one that they want to give a shot at repairing, just uh, hit me up. Maybe we'll, uh, I'll send it to you or something. So go from there. But all right, Andre, I think that's, that's it for our week. So we want to take a break and uh, move on to the next segment. Sounds good. Cool, cool. All right, folks, we'll be right back after this break. All right, folks, we're back from the break, and so this is going to be a little shorter episode. Well, not really a shorter episode, but shorter with Andre and I because uh, we uh, we're, were trying to get together. Uh, we were trying to work this out uh, to get together with uh, Anil Mystery. Uh, he has a photo book that's coming out, and he wanted to come on the show, and, and uh, we wanted to have him on to talk about it. And he's also one of the listeners that's in the UK. And, you know, we've had real difficulty with Andre's schedule, my schedule, our, my, my family's schedule, and, uh, and then, of course, the, the, the schedule of the, whoever the listener or the, is in the U.K. Because we've been trying to get Graham on here from Sunny 16 to do the, the negative positives uh, double exposure challenge, the tag team challenge. And uh, we think we found a way to work that out. But 
uh, we'll let you know about that as we kind of get that worked out. But we're gonna we haven't forgot about the judging of it. We're gonna we're gonna make that happen, and we've kind of come up with a plan that might work for that. But it's been really hard to get UK listeners uh, on the show. So uh, what we proposed uh, to Anil was basically to go ahead and record what he wanted to say about his book, mm-hmm. and we would just insert it into the into the show. So that's what he's done for us, and it's really good because he he pretty much. Uh, you know, talked a lot about the process of making a photo book and, um, and just not, not just, not just about his book, but you know, the process of what he went through to make it. And I think it'd be really helpful to anybody else that's thinking about, uh, doing a photo book. So, uh, we're going to go ahead and put in, uh, his, uh, his recording here, but Andre, do you have any thoughts about this, uh, the photo book or making your own photo book or, or just uh, there are difficulties with getting together with UK listeners for, to be on the show. <laughs> <laughs> no, we were actually saying um, it, it is crazy. You know, M being all the way out there in the Far East, it's easier to record with him. But then I countered to Mike, yeah, well, maybe it's just that M is is fine. You know, taking off some some hours uh, from work on a on a Monday morning. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm I haven't listened to. Um, to this uh, recording that Anil made yet, so I'm excited to listen back to this episode uh, sometime this week and learn because, man, if there's if there's anybody that needs a kick in the pants to actually you know put together some piece of work using his photography, it's uh, it's yours truly. So <laughs> very true, very true. All right, so we're gonna uh, go ahead and put uh, Anil Mysteries. Uh, recording in here about his photo book and about making a photo book and then we'll come back and wrap up this show so uh enjoy folks well okay here we go so uh my name is anil mystery and i'm here to talk about a new photography book i've just done uh which is called monochrome uh firstly i'd just like to thank mike for giving me this opportunity and this is a weird one for me because um, we, because of the time differences uh, between the UK and the US, Mike and I couldn't do a proper live recording. So I'm using a bit of software called Audition and speaking through a telephone-style headset. Uh, sitting here in front of me is a glass of whiskey uh, in a teacup, which I think is an insult to both whiskey and tea. So that's a good start. Uh, and I've got some water. And I've got the book in front of me and my notes. So I'm hoping to try and do this as as much as one go as possible uh, so I don't mess up my recording and my software. So if you do hear the odd little pause, uh, it's just me having paused the software for a minute before I carry on recording. So please forgive me. Um, This is all new to me. Coming from the world of uh, television, we're used to speaking in nice punchy sound bites and keeping things clean and concise. But Mike's show is the opposite of that. And that's why I love it. He rambles on in a haze of whiskey and cigarettes. So hopefully that's what I'm going to try and do, but without the cigarettes. Um, So firstly, Mike, thanks, mate, for having me on your show. I love your show. It's fantastic. I just love sort of dipping in and out of your life on the other side of the world, what you've been up to. And I really admire the fact that you create this great podcast um, in your spare time, which you seem to have very little of. But um, I think like a lot of us photographers, it's our side hustle and it's something we love so much we just try and squeeze it into every spare moment we have um, as I have done uh, with my current book. So okay I'll kick it off. So I'm Anil Mystery. I live in Shoreham by Sea on the south coast of the UK. 
Uh, I work as a creative director and in my spare time, I'm starting to build a sort of slowly a photography business and just enjoying taking pictures. Uh, I also collect and love shooting with lots of different cameras and lenses. Um, and I think in terms of my photography, I wouldn't say I'm a photographer. I actually try to use the term image maker, but it just sounds a bit pretentious. But by that, I mean... I like taking photographs, but sometimes for me, the photograph is just the first part of it. I like to use graphic design and other elements and mix the, the images I get from my photography with other things. So I like to mess around and I work with um, film and digital, uh, but I'm here to talk today mainly about a book uh, that I've made uh, of my film photographs. Uh, I love to experiment and I think experimenting is so important for photog photographers and I think that's one of the problems sometimes I find with film is that you're, you're forced to be a little precious uh, and that's why I also shoot with digital because uh, it lets me mess around and try shit out before I then invest and, and, and you know do it on with my film cameras but for me uh, the combinations and the permutations of different film stocks, different lenses, different cameras uh, just is infinite and I really really enjoy it um, so I'm going to kick off then uh, so firstly let's talk about this book so I know it's a bit weird talking about a photo book as a on a podcast because you can't see the bloody thing so I will be describing some pages and things and talking about different aspects of photo books per se not just mine but um, I thought it would be interesting to talk about you know what's my process behind this book how did I come about doing it what was my thinking behind it all? Um, so let's get into it. So why did I make a photography book? Well, why does anyone do anything? Um, it's the eternal question. Um, I think as a photographer, you spend so much time taking pictures. And obviously, yes, if you develop your work um, at home and have a lab and print, you have your pictures in a physical form. Um, but I don't, I don't have the time and also I... In my uh, darkroom uh, days were a long time ago and I had issues because I'm slightly colorblind and because of that I could never see the red light in a dark room so it was literally a dark room and I'd stumble around not being able to see a bloody thing so I haven't actually been in a dark room or tried it again for a very very long time I've actually um, taken part in that Kickstarter for the lab box uh, the desktop-based sort of uh, darkroom-free developing kit uh, that the guys, I think they're in Italy, I think they've been working on. Uh, hopefully that will be around at some point, so maybe I'll start getting involved with uh, developing my own film uh, using monobath and stuff. Uh, but to be honest, I would like to get back into a darkroom because uh, maybe I, you know, with modern lighting, because the last time I was in there was in the early 90s, maybe with modern lighting, um, I may be able to see what the hell I'm doing and it would be a nice thing to do because I actually miss the smell. I do remember that smell very, very well. Um, so this book is based upon um, photographs I've been taking over the past three or four years. Um, and I, may, I wanted to make a book because, again, I like seeing my pictures in a physical form. Um, and I think pictures really come alive when you can touch them and smell them and crinkle pages and, you know, hand a page over and show somebody. It's just the most human way to look at them. And I just get so bored of, you know, you shoot stuff on film, you get it scanned, it sits there on a hard drive. You may share it on 
Instagram or something at a really low resolution, and that's the only way people see it. So I think printing in one form or another is going to become a bigger part of my workflow and my sort of targets for the future and what I do in my photography. So this book, what's it about? So I've called it monochrome. Uh, so by the title, you can guess it's black and white photography. And this is the, the difficult bit. What is about? What is it about? What the hell is it about? I've written in my notes. I, I think the hardest thing is you, you take all sorts of different types of photographs and you're your own worst enemy because you judge your work. And you're the harshest judge of your of your own work and work, and you should be because if you're not judging your work and you think everything you create is great, then you're um, deluded, uh, and you're not going to learn anything. So I'm in my work as a creative director and a designer. I've been involved in design, well, probably since the age of fifteen, really. Um, I it's such a big part of my life and everything I do in my work life, my private life, and things I enjoy doing. So I'm a very, very, very analytical and harsh critic of my own work um, and the work of others. I, you know, I like to be supportive, but I built up a view and um, of things that I think make a good photograph. Uh, and for me, it's not all about composition and, um, you know, the conventions, if you like, or the rules, because there, there, there are, you know, there are conventions, but there aren't any rules uh, to photography. And yes, of course, photography is very, very subjective. And I think what I tried to do uh, with this book was choose the photographs that I've, from the, the shots I've, the thousands of shots I've taken over the past four or five years that sort of resonated with me. Um, and these are shots that I've shot in all sorts of different places. So I commute in and out of London a lot for work. Um, so a lot of the shots have been taken on my journey to work uh, or, on, or on the way back. Um, I, I organize street walks and in my spare time, I, I just go on photo walks of my own. And so I wander streets a lot um, and take shots. And I've, you know, travel a bit. I uh, haven't done much lately, but wherever I go, I have a camera with me, as I'm sure a lot of you do. So I just try and take shots of things wherever I can. Um, a little side bit here. I mean, in terms of the cameras I use, I this book is is I've, is made with shots from all sorts of different cameras. From I think there's a few medium format ones in there, but it's point and shoots uh, from the cheap end to the luxury end, um, SLRs um, and range finders, uh, everything from you know Leica to uh, you know a tiny little Olympus to a, a sh you know the, the shittiest. Um, charity shop point and shoot you can find um, whatever I've taken out with me on the day and whatever film stock is in there uh, so it's all sorts of different shots um, and I think what I've tried to do with this book is pick shots that resonate with me in some sort of way um, so let me explain that to you the introduction to my book uh, I've kept really simple and it says this, when I look at the world in black and white, the distraction that colour can so often bring disappears. Only content, form and tone remain. This stripped down reality reveals a simpler realm filmed with drama and symbolism. To me, it's a strange, magical and dreamlike place. 
Now, that took me ages to write. And every time I wrote something, I felt like slapping myself in the face because it sounded really pretentious. But this was my book. And I thought, I've, I've got to put down in words how I thought of the world of black and white and what my thinking was when I sort of chose the shots to go in the book. Um, so that's what it's all about. It's about this stripped down reality that the fact that when you shoot in black and white, color is gone and you start to see the world um, tonally, which I really, really like. And when you see the world tonally, you start to see the world in a more structural way uh, because that distraction of color has disappeared. Um, so everything is sort of broken down into a simpler way. And I think that creates a, a more distinct and unique visual language um, because it's not real. We see the world in color and black and white is a sort of tonal represent representation of that world. I think a lot of animals like wolves and so on see the world in black and white. Um, and so that, that becomes really interesting to me because it, it becomes a really a more of a graphic form. Um, and for me, because it's more graphic, it's more dramatic. And the images take on this sort of almost, I, mean, I like to use the word cinematic because looking back, you know, if you watch an old black and white film or an early David Lynch film or an early Scorsese film, a lot of the time they're in black and white because he's, they've chosen to shoot in black and white. Um, and because black and white is a simpler world and um, you can create sort of more stronger moments of truth and drama through it and that's the appeal of black and white for me but the other thing I love about black and white is the fact that you've got black and white and in the middle you've got all this tone all this gray and tonality uh, which I think is wonderful um, and in fact it's partly because I'm getting older I love what I've really started to get into old black and white films now uh, partly because I love seeing footage of London back in the old days especially when you watch an old gangster flick or a get Carter or you know uh, some British uh, kitchen sink drama. You see the, the the world as it was. And I think that's the other thing about black and white. There's a sort of uh, stylistic language to it. It has this sense of being retro. But I think beyond that, I think for me, black and white is about something that, that is timeless. Black and white photography feels timeless to me. It's almost a place without time. So when I took shots and when I sort of started to choose the shots for my book, I was quite conscious of the fact that I wanted to find, make photographs that didn't smack of a particular era. Uh, cause one thing I hate is, um, shots of, you know, street photography. You see, you just see shots of people staring to their phones. I find that so dull and it's really, really depressing. Um, and for me, I wanted to try and find shots of a world where time didn't exist. So I was quite conscious and that was one of my sort of shooting criterias for things I put in my book of finding frames and finding shots where it was hard to gauge the exact era in from where the shot came from because I love that the idea of photography being from a place without time. Um, so that, that was one of my criteria, if you like, from when I uh, from what I chose to put in the book. So I'll go back to, I'm rambling, I know, and I do apologize. Um, it's the whiskey and uh, trying to talk and read notes and look at a book and staring at my sound meter going up and down all the time. I'm sure Mike will be laughing at this because uh, I'm sure he has the same problem. So I'll just have another sip of whiskey here. That's better. So what's my book about? I think my book, yes, it's about the drama and the, you know, the timelessness of black and white. But from a personal point of view, it's actually also, for me, it's been about strong editing exercise. 
because I looked back at all these photos I'd taken on, I mean, you know, hundreds of rolls of film and going through them all, um, looking at them on my Mac, uh, you know, to the point where my eyes were getting blurry and exhausted. And I thought, how the hell am I actually choosing these shots? How am I going to choose what's going to go in this book? So the first thing I did as an editing exercise was just go through and think, okay, without thinking about what's in the shot, what are the shots that strike me as being interesting images? Um, and for me, that's where I've looked at it because I'm in, it's in black and white. What makes a strong graphic image? Um, so I've pulled out things that, you know, have nice moments of contrast in them, but also stuff that I just feel is not specific or, or a little bit indistinct or a little bit ambiguous. I love ambiguity in a photograph or in an image where you're seeing something and you're not sure what's going on in it or, or why it's there. So as an example, um, near where I live, I live near the sea and there's a, a, a fishery, a place where you can buy fresh fish and they pull it in off the boats. Uh, but it's along the lower road near the sea and it's right next to a giant cement works. So I've got a photograph of their promotional statue of a giant shrimp, which is sat on the lawn outside of this fishery. But in the background is all this industrial machinery that looks like God knows what a weird brutalist landscape. So essentially there's a picture I've put in the book of a giant prawn uh, with this brutalist building behind it. And you don't know what it is, where it's from, why it's there. And that's what I enjoy about that picture because it, it, it feels a bit science fiction. It feels a bit horror, but it also feels a bit everyday. But ultimately, it feels a little bit strange. And what I've tried to do is find images that are a little strange. So I'll describe another image. Uh, there's a playground um, on the road uh, walking from where I live to Brighton, the nearest big town. And it's a kiddie's playground with lots of grass and lawn. But for some reason, right in the middle of it is this giant sculpture of, it's like, it's almost as if a great white shark is lurching out of the grass in the lawn as if the lawn is the sea and coming out to grab a kid. And it's just the most terrifying thing, the, the last thing you'd expect in a child's playground. So I stood across the road and I took this, just a flat photograph of it. Uh, the closest I ever get to landscape, really. And you've got these innocent kids and just kiddies playing around with their parents. And behind the fence, there's this giant bloody shark that's just bursting out of the floor. Now, for me, that it just makes a really interesting image because that's also the thing about photography is, as, as you all probably know, you walk past things every day that have become normalized to you. And I always walk past this thing and I just thought, oh, that'd make an interesting shot. But adding it into this book where it's full of ambiguous images, it just starts to feel really strange. And I think that's another point here is sometimes when you pick your own images, you, you're very judgmental and you think that's boring because I've seen that a million times. But someone viewing your book hasn't seen that before. And to them, that could just be the best image in the world. It's something that's just interesting. So I think a good idea is when you're making a book is to almost try and step out of yourself step out of your association with your pictures when you're making a, a book of photographs. And that's really helped me because it's helped me to sort of start to judge it with different criteria and think, okay, yes, this is okay. As an example, you know, I, I love taking shots of the sea because the sea is mysterious. And sometimes when it's flat and there's not much going on, I just think it's beautiful. For me, there's just a flat sea without many waves just represents a dreamlike state, um, especially in black and white. Um, but I've taken hundreds of them, but I've picked a few out to go in this book um, simply because 
they have a certain quality to them. Whether, you know, maybe the horizon's slightly off, or it's a very, very flat sea, but then there's just a sense of the light catching a wave at the foreground, so that you get, you know, a feeling of motion in this otherwise flat seascape. But the sea again is, you know, it's. You know, I'm sure there's lots of Freudian associations with the sea and what it means and what it means to people. Um, so that I, I've essentially tried to find images that just feel strange or different um, and put them together. And so after I got down to a few hundred images, I started to um, sort of see what they looked like sat together next to each other. Um, and that's when things got interesting as well. So, you know, I might have an image of a, a random building, but then a close-up of somebody's hand or a random picture of a hammer on a table. Um, and I started to look at what is the association? What happens if you put one image next to another? And you get, again, get into that whole game of symbolism. It's like that word association game. You know, if you say a word and you immediately ask someone to say another word related to that or whatever comes into their head, what are the things they come up with? And sometimes those things they come up with are very straightforward and, you know, related to what you've said. But sometimes they're really, really random because they sort of link back to not an obvious link, but something that means something in the in the mind of the person who's made the association. Um, so I've tried to, in this book, create pages where sometimes there's two images. Um, and sometimes those images, they're not directly linked, but in my mind, with my own logic and in my own way, they made sense and they had a sort of link between them. Um, I'm hoping that makes sense. And I'm hoping it's not just the whiskey. Uh, let me just have another sip here. Oh, that's good. Uh, it certainly helps my um, artistic voice. Um, so that's another way I sort of started to look at the images in this book. Um, by the, the criteria I was making was okay, sort of, you know, as black and white graphic images, do they work? Um, as just images in their own right, are they interesting and not just everyday things? So I, I've, I've tried and tried my best to find images that don't represent everyday photography. And sometimes those images are images of really banal things. Uh, but because they're banal, they're, they're just interesting and weird. So for an example, uh, there's a very famous old British actor called Terry Thomas, who always played a sort of a cad type character. And I was in the toilets um, of a pub in on the coast somewhere. And above the hand dryer is a framed picture of Terry Thomas holding a tennis racket. And it just struck me as just such a, a quintessentially British moment. But Terry Thomas has got this sort of hard competitive grin on his face. And this photograph is literally framed and placed above the hand dryer. And it's just the most random thing. But as a black and white image, it's just fantastic. It's, I, I don't, it's saying a million things. It's talking about culture. It's talking about, I love the composition of the whole thing. I love the fact that there's a character from old black and white films in my black and white photograph. Um, so I've been applying all sorts of layers of my own personal logic to the pictures that go into this book. Uh, it is a mixture of street photography, but by street photography, I just mean photographs of things I've seen on the street. I don't mean the sort of classic street photography of I don't know, someone fighting someone on a street corner or, or an old drunk or a really powerful shadow of some, and someone walking past a shadow at a particular moment in a light trap. Uh, I've, that, and in fact, I'll, 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 I'll touch on this as well. And it goes back to my own thing about sort of self-criticism and what makes a good photograph. I've, I've tried my best in this book to 
almost try and stray away from what I see a lot of the time is cliche. Now, I know that it's impossible in anyone's work, whoever you are, to stay away from cliche. But this has also been my attempt to do that. So I've tried not to have photographs where, you know, I don't know, someone's walking down a street and there's an arrow on the floor pointing to them as they walk past it. Or, you know, a photo on the bus stand of a woman's face reacts with their f- looks as if it's reacting to them as they as you know someone's walking by it i've actually tried to find photos that are a little stranger and a little more different because i'm my own worst critic and i almost sort of said to myself okay this isn't a photo a, a book of my photograph this is actually i want it to be a book that i would want to look at um so <laughs> in the creation of that i'm hoping it's a book that you would find interesting if you saw as well because you know you just never know and you just have to go with it and I think that's another thing I learned throughout this book is I I'm a big self-critic throughout my life and my work my one of my big things towards self-improvement in my design work my photography whatever I'm doing I I automatically tend to hate everything I've done um, a year after I've done it Um, and so I'm constantly ripping my own work to shreds and hating what I'm doing and thinking you're not original this is boring this is terrible so the way I went about choosing work for this book was almost to try and step out of my own brain and step out of myself and be almost a picture editor someone who has no relationship to myself and is just picking images in a sort of cold way to start with and thinking okay that just has a nice composition irrespective of what's in it irrespective of whether I like the picture or not, I'm going to pull that out. And that started to become interesting because a lot of the images I've found are images that were just moments of luck or mistakes. So I'm looking at one at the moment. Um, I was outside a pub once. Uh, there were a bunch of rockers uh, stood outside. They let me take their pictures. But I, one of the um, the subjects was female. And just before, just as I was taking her photograph, she was just I think she was rubbing her eyes or doing something to her eyes or her eye makeup. But anyway, what happened, I, the camera, because of the shutter speed, it caught her eyes at the moment when her eyelids were closing and opening. So there's, if you look at her eyes, you can actually see her eyeballs and her eyelids at the same time because they're caught within a blur. And it's made a really weird picture because this woman looks possessed and a bit creepy as a result of it. So I just love that image. So that went in. Um, and I found images that there's, you know, I've, I've talked about this before on a number of other podcasts. I, I, yes, focus is important, but for me, focus can also ruin an image. I like images that aren't always perfectly in focus. For me, that's almost the least of my concerns. For me, it's what's in front of the camera that's important. And a lot of the time it's the focus or the, the, the lack of it that actually makes an interesting image. Um, and also the randomness of it. I mean, I, one of my photographs is, um, I've done a two-page spread where there is uh, two images. Uh, one of them is of that there's a prayer room in the Tate Modern Gallery. And it's just a really, really strange image because you've essentially got a door, a white door, and on it, it just says in plain text, multi-faith and contemplation room. And then opposite that, I've put an image of what, I, I couldn't work out what it was, but on the, on the, in a, some dark alleyway one night, there was a tray and on the floor and in this tray was just a pile of gunk. I don't know whether it was, whether someone had puked in it or whether it was just some old food or what, but anyway, I shot it with a forced flash on the camera 
and it just looks disgusting. But the as a two-page spread, these two images side by side opposite each other just have a resonance to me. Um, and they create this nice counterpoint to each other. You've got this lovely, clean, calm image saying multi-faith and contemplation room, this concept of prayer and God. On the other side, you've got this image of just crap in a tray and you can't work out what it is. And for me, there's this sort of idea of ugliness compared to this idea of uh, grace and calm and, uh, you know, um, spirituality. So I think throughout the book, there's lots of moments of point and counterpoint, if you like. Um, but sometimes there are connections I've made between things that I, I, I'm not even sure what they are. They just seem to work to me. I've also realised that, <laughs> strangely, quite a few images in this book uh, seem to run with a, a more and more prevalent theme in my mind as I get older, and that is the, the theme of life and death. Um, there seems to be images of I've got an image in in the book of uh, it's a pub. It's a very quiet moment, and there's a very old guy sat on a seat, but he's wearing an extremely long cardigan, and he's just looking up and out of the window, and um, he just looks like he's contemplating on the whole of his life and what's left of it. Uh, but then on the opposite page, I have an image of uh, quite simply, um, it's uh, a bed sheet that's hanging on a dryer on a um, rotary dryer in my garden but this crinkled white sheet looking all rumpled and white uh, I don't know it felt a bit like a shroud of some sort or a ghost or I don't know what but taken out of context and placed in this book just became quite a dramatic interesting image for me um, but then I've got icons and things like crows and ravens black cats um Lots of distant seascapes, empty landscapes. I, Jesus Christ, I think it's all quite depressing. No, not really. I, I, I think it's, it's quite interesting. I think, I, I think that's that's another thing. It's worth doing a photo book because by doing it and by looking through your images, you sort of you're analysing yourself and you're finding out about what's on your mind in a way because you're you're choosing images by your own weird criteria that it's hard to put a finger on. Um, and they all seem to come together and they start to form their own narrative. And a lot of the, that, that time, and it's very much in this book I've created, that the, the narrative seems to reflect me. Um, so <laughs> there's a darkness, there's a blankness, there's a, a bit of an obsession with death, there's an ambiguity, uh, there's almost mental illness, I think. Um, there's all sorts of things going on um, in the book when I look at it. and. That's the other thing. You can't step out of yourself. So I'm looking at it and making all these judgments. But people looking at my book will obviously say many, many different things about it. Um, and I th I'm sure a lot of you will say, Jesus, that's not even in focus. Or why the fuck have you just chosen an image of a, a twig on some grass? Uh, but for me, that twig, I love the form of it. And um, that's that. It's in the book. So I'm sorry. There we go. So I'm going to move on a bit. So after that sort of vague bit on selecting shots and that criteria I think the, the main thing to take from that is that I think you need to spend a bit of time and really ruminate upon what you're trying to make as a book and be very very clear or as clear as you can in terms of what what is this book about what do I want to be in it so beyond the compositional and the technical quality of your shots just really ask yourself that question because if it's a book you want to sell or share 
it should be something either you know technically that, that there's that that has a technical reason for it you know i don't know it's shot with this camera and this lens and you know this was the type of thing i was after or there's a more personal narrative to it and for me this is a personal book um and so that, that that's a really really key thing really think hard about why am i making this book and this is going to bring me naturally onto the next bit which is about how i put it together because that that for me was though i i use design software and i'm you know i'm happy to put things together when you're doing your own work that that it's the challenge is to not make a total uh, shit fight of it by just doing everything to every image and putting a million things in and adding loads of type and just going a bit crazy you have to i think less is more uh when you go to um make a photo book um i've written a little article on on this for emulsive.org so do take a look at that which has lots of tips on it um so firstly this book was uh i'll explain the format it's an a4 portrait uh, landscape book uh the reason i chose landscape was that a lot of my pictures i realized and this is a good point i shoot a lot of pictures in portrait mode um, and I wanted to be able to put portrait images side by side. So a good question to you is, you know, what's the most common format in which you're shooting pictures? Um, and which uh, format or um, aspect ratio book will suit that most? Because nowadays with modern printing, you can obviously go square. You can go in all sorts of standard sizes. Uh, I decided to go landscape because also the thing about I like about landscape is when you open the book out, it it's wider and it gives your photographs more, more room to breathe um, so I put it together using InDesign uh, which let me just play with pages uh, nice and easily um, another thing to note and one thing I I wanted to do deliberately was I didn't want to almost touch my scans so I received my scans back from my lab of all my photographs they're all been taken using different film stocks on different cameras with different lenses so in each one, the tonality and the sort of level of tone from black to white to grey in between is very different. Some were very hard contrast if I'd used a, you know, a contrasty film that had strong blacks or if I'd pushed the film. Some weren't. Some had that lovely greyness to it. And I realised that I actually liked and wanted that sense of greyness. I didn't want a book that sort of with really harsh black and white to it. It wasn't about heavy contrast. Um, it was actually about the bits in between. So... Uh, another thing I did is I, I, I decided to just drop the photos into this book as they came to me. I didn't grade them in any way or up the contrast or mess around with them. I just wanted them in as is. And um, I'll come to the uh, the paper I use later as well. And there was a reason I chose the paper as well. So I've made this book in A4 landscape. Um, it's 64 pages long. And with something like InDesign, you can just add as many pages as you like. And, you know, the first thing I did was I started grabbing these pictures um, out of my folders uh, that I'd created and just dropping them in and starting to look at my page spreads and thinking what works, what do, does it, do I actually like this image anymore? Shall I get rid of it? What sits next, next to something else nicely? What makes sense when I look at one image, then turn the page to the next? Um, and just started to play. And I think my biggest tip at this stage is when you start dropping images in, it's very, very easy to get excited. Go, oh, I love that. That's great. That's fantastic. Um, and just go a bit crazy and end up making something, you know, like 300 pages long and it will bore the shit out of people. And I think I set myself a limit of 64 pages. Um, 
I wanted something that that was quite comprehensive, but where I didn't go mad because again, I have a short attention span, and I'm always conscious that I don't want to bore people uh, with what I'm showing them because you can sort of kill people with imagery. You know, I'm you know we all love everything we shoot, but it doesn't mean that someone buying your book will. And sometimes, and the, you know, a key thing again, especially with a website as well as a book, is to leave people wanting more. You know, if you show three or show three or four great images. Um, and then show four or five, six that you sort of thought were okay, but just because you wanted to show them in your book, you will actually take away from the power of those three or four great images. And it's better to show less and make people think, holy shit, that person is amazing and leave them wanting more. Because by adding more that isn't as good as the stuff you've added before, you water down the other work. And by the time they've seen the other stuff, they've forgotten about the really good stuff. Uh, and they're just like, yeah, meh, whatever. Um, so I think that's one of my main things. Don't go crazy and don't try to cram too much onto every page. What I did was, despite the fact that I was working in A4 in landscape, I never had more than two images on a page. And uh, I wanted to give each image space to breathe. Again, because of the cost of photo books, it's easy to think, oh God, I'm just going to put all my shit in there and get loads of shots in there and cram them up really tight and close to each other. But the way you've got to look at it is when it, when you want people to really look at your images, you know, when you're in an art gallery, you're looking at a photograph, it's surrounded, it's in a frame, it usually has a mount around the frame, then it has the frame, then it has loads of space around the frame. And what they they're doing by, say, what they're saying by doing that is, look, this is an image. We framed it and we just want you to look at this image for a while before you walk on and look at the next image. Uh, because you want people to get the best out of everything you've shot. So if you put loads of images on one page with not much space between them, it just looks like a photo album and not a photo book. And for me, that takes away from it and it takes away from the power of each shot. So despite the fact that I had you know big A4 pages to play with, I deliberately gave my images lots of breathing room and I equalized them out on each page so there was nice space between each each image so that one image doesn't blend into the next and each one sort of stands on its own. And I think that's really important because especially when someone, you know, who doesn't know your work is looking at your work from, from for the first time, you want them to see it with as little distraction as possible. So I think a good tip there is to, you know, give space to breathe around your images because what that does is it lets people see it clearly without the other images images on the page bleeding into what they're looking at. But also it's saying something about that image by the fact that you've given it space. You're saying this is something important. This is something I want to look at, you to look at in the way I want you to. And I think that brings me on to the next thing whilst I have another sip of whiskey. <clears throat> Excuse me. And that's about cropping. I was not afraid to crop images because usually, especially when you shoot, you know, with film or with any camera, really, you're shooting extra space around things. And for me, a cropping is as much a part of the, uh, a design tool and a photographic tool as taking the photo itself. Because a lot of the time, well, most of the time, I think you shoot something with space around it anyway. Um, but also, I think just it's a good exercise in itself to go and play with your images because sometimes you, you might have a crappy image that you think is crappy. But by cropping it, you suddenly realize, hang on, this part of this image is really interesting. And, and by just looking at that corner of this street that I shot and making that the image instead of the whole street, um, I've created something really interesting. 
And so don't be afraid of cropping stuff and don't be afraid of playing with the formats. Um, sometimes I've made a landscape landscape image into a portrait one within my uh, book. Uh, but a lot of the time what I've done is I've cropped things down into squares because I, I love the square format as well. And the square is a really nice thing for the human eye to get around um, and to look at images within. So I think throughout the book I've played. Um, one thing I haven't done is created images apart from the front and back covers. I haven't had images that bleed off the page. Again, I like a bit of framing and edging around my pictures. Um, I think if things bleed off, it, it, you're sort of making a graphic statement. Um, and I think it detracts a bit from the picture and you sort of wonder if you're missing something as a viewer. So I like people to know, look, this is my image. These are the boundaries that I've created for it. And I placed it in a format in which I want you to look at it um, and enjoy it. Uh, so that's a good few tips there on laying out and how I've gone, how I've gone about it. Um, the other thing is design a typography. Now, typography is a minefield. If you're a graphic designer, uh, you have a, an eye for type and a sense of type and layout. But a lot of the problems with um, online publishing is, uh, you know, some companies have their own publishing tools and you just load your pictures up onto it and it gives you loads of fonts to dick around with. And you do, you dick around with them and it ruins your work. So throughout my book, though I was tempted as well, I've stayed away from adding any text or any copy to any of the images I decided in this book and I fought against my instincts because uh, I was desperate to almost say oh god I need to provide a framework for people to understand what I've done apart from the intro on the on the uh, first page of the book just talking about my views on the, this black and white world I've stayed away from adding any notes to any image because I quite simply wanted them to live by themselves and be able to judge them by themselves and just for them to sit on their own merits and for, to let people make their own decisions on what these images are and why I put them there. Um, if you don't know much about typography, don't go mad with type in a photo book because it can absolutely ruin it. And I've seen so many photo books, so many zines where people just put big loads of shitty type all over their image, thinking they're being creative and being designers. But what it does is it wrecks your book. And unless you do it either with real style and you really know what you're doing, um, I would just generally stay away from doing that. Uh, less is more. Again, let your images speak. And if you're putting copy and print down, do take time to look at look at photo books that you own that you love you know, by famous people or friends that, that there's something about them that you think is great. Look at the way they've laid out type and copy. And generally what you'll find is, you know, the more expensive and high end the photography and the photographer and the book, the the more le um, sort of the, the, the less crazy the type is uh, because they want the images to stand out. And again, all of this stuff speaks subtly about your work if you're starting to go crazy with type people get it people people without realizing they're thinking oh god this is a bit of an amateurish job so you know less is more don't mess around with type and different fonts on each page and you know stupid sizes and angles and stretching type um, you're just asking for trouble and you'll turn your book into a pile of shit. And I think that's one of the main things I want to say here because there's nothing worse than bad typography. It just ruins your photography and it just makes you look amateurish. Okay, so I think the next thing I want to talk about is 
uh, paper and paper stock and so on. So when you're making photo books, you it's very, very confusing. You end up with loads of options of, of paper stock. You know, what should I use? Coated, uncoated, what thickness of paper? As a general rule, if you're using paper with a thickness of 130 grams per square meter, 130 GSM and over, that allows you to print on both sides of a sheet of paper and you shouldn't get bleed through. So for the sake of my book, I use 150 gram. Now, if you use um, coated paper or, you know, slightly shiny or satin paper, most photo books, uh, unless you're spending a fortune on lithography and litho printing, are, most of them are printed digitally uh, on a digital press like an indigo or something similar. So um, if you print on coated paper, uh, the ink sort of sits on top of the paper. Um, that's the best way I can describe it. Because there's a coating on the paper, it stops the ink from sinking in. So what you'll generally get is images with, I'd say they're a little bit punchier and with higher contrast. Um, I don't I don't like a shiny page. I, I think it's uh, a bit amateurish. And for this, I wanted to have a lovely matte finish to my book. So I went for uncoated paper. Now the thing to remember about uncoated paper is because it's uncoated, when when it's printed upon, the ink actually sinks in and sits into the page a bit better. But what that also does is it can lighten your images slightly and um, you know your blacks may not come out as punchy or as black as you want them to be or think they should be. Now, I wanted that look for my book. I wanted that lovely in-between grayness and that sense of you know a retro, a, a vintage film or that sense of a place without, you know, where time doesn't exist. So I've deliberately gone for a book uh, and a printing quality that doesn't have that heavy, heavy uh, black and white look. Now, if you want that heavy, heavy black and white punchy look, you may need to adjust each of your shots individually and, you know, play with the, uh, the, the blacks, um, the black point and so on. And this is where it can get confusing, depending upon if you're uh, working with a printer who wants files in CMYK or if they want them in RGB. So as a general tip, I would always speak to your printer and ask them specifically in very clear email, just say, look, I, I'm shooting in, I, I've got a book of black and white photographs. I want the blacks to be really black. How should I deliver my images? So they'll tell you whether they want them as RGB or grayscale or CMYK or any particular sort of output format and follow those rules. But also, you know, put the word out with all your friends who've done photo books and ask them how they did it. And if there's a particular person who's achieved a result that you like, just say, how did you get them to print it in that way? Because, you know, once you're dropping a, you know, a few hundred pounds on a book, once it's printed, it's done. And if there's nothing worse than a book coming back, and I've done it myself in the past, you've dropped all that cash and it comes back and you're just not quite happy and it just sits with you and it niggles with you and it's an awful feeling. Uh, and that brings me on to another point. Most serious printers will give send you free paper samples uh, before you print. So always do that. So as you're starting to think about uh, photo books, and even if you're not, just contact a few of the online printing services and just ask them for uh, samples. So you can start looking at the paper they, they actually have, touch it and feel it. And that will give you a lot more confidence over the, the, look you, uh, what, the look you'll achieve and what you want to ask for when you actually go for um, the final print. Um, so I think 
I've talked a lot and rambled on a lot. So, um, Mike, I hope this is interesting. And uh, people out there listening, I hope you found this interesting. Uh, But my final tip, and I think the really, really key one is, again, you've looked at your images every day. You shoot them yourself. You get them. You stare at them. You look at them on your computer. You've been staring at them on your computer as you make a book. The most important thing, I think, uh, when you're making a book is to be as objective as possible, to step out of yourself and to try and look at it through the eyes of someone looking at this book. And so what I did a lot when I made my book was every time I thought, okay, yeah, I've nailed it. I've reached this point and I love everything I've done. I would stop and I would turn my computer off or just actually go for a walk for a few hours or get on with something else and then come back to it. And then look at it all again. And immediately, because I'd stepped out of that mindset I was in previously, I'd realized that there were shots that were just crap. I thought, what the hell are you doing, Anil? You've got to get rid of that. Or I'd realize that, hang on, now if I put that shot and move that one up there and put it next to that other shot or move this one around over there and play around a bit more, things will look better. And I did this umpteen times. I did about 15 or 20 times while I was making this book because it was the most, most important thing uh, for me was to just get that that flow of the book right because you want to start well and you want to end well you want to start on interesting images you know take people on a journey through your work and end on interesting stuff as well and you don't want to suddenly go oh I'll put all my great shots in the beginning and I'll just cram all this shit in at the back and then you walk away and you come back and then you go and that gives you the time to think on it a moment and think you know what actually I've got to stop Uh, because when you're doing a photo but you get so excited and you just want to hit print you just want it in your hands and that's the biggest biggest thing to fight you've got to fight that urge to just hit print uh, because again remember once you've done that there's no going back you've paid for it and you're going to get it and you know you're going to get your 50 or 100 or whatever books in the post and that's it you're stuck with what you've done and the other final bit of advice the obvious thing is read through anything you've written, any copy for typos, read it again and again and again, step away, reading it again and again and again, get other people to read it again and again and again, just to check. Uh, because I've done it again myself, I've made books and I've had typos on them and I just, I still punch myself now, you know, two or three years later. So, That kind of brings me to the end of what I've been talking about. I've been rambling on for quite a while now, and I do hope it's of interest. And it has been weird talking about a book that you can't see. Uh, So I'm going to tell you where you can see it and buy it and get it. Um, So firstly, uh, back to the book. It's called Monochrome. Uh, My name's Anil Mystery. That's A-N-I-L-M-I-S-T-R-Y. So if you go to my website, that's anilmysteryphoto.com and click on the shop section, you can see it there and it, under monochrome. And what you'll have to do is um, click on my email icon on the left, uh, send me an email just to say, hello, I'd like to buy the book, and then I'll get back to you and tell you what to do. It just involves you um, paying me through PayPal, basically. But the reason I've done that is that I don't want you to go and just buy it straight away and then realize that I'm out of stock. Um, and so uh, that's the first thing. Uh, you can also find me on Instagram um, at Animal Mystery Photo and also on Twitter at Animal Mystery. Um, so that's me, and that's been me talking about my photo book. Now, I really do hope uh, it's been useful and interesting uh, because uh, if you haven't done one already, you'll go through this yourself. It can be a confusing world, but once you get engaged with it, it's very exciting and addictive, and you suddenly want to make loads of photo books all the time. Uh, but the, the thing I will say is 
you know, every, every book you make is saying something about you uh, and your views on photography and, you know, your personality, because we all want to reflect ourselves through our work. Um, so make it yours. Don't just go, oh, I'll do some street photography and everything you've done is just like the street photography everyone else has done. Just sit down, really ask yourself those hard, hard questions. What is it about me and why do I shoot those kinds of shots? And what is it about that particular street photography shot that I enjoyed and liked? Um, and just push yourself and force yourself down that funnel to really inform and edit your work so that you will come out with something that is truly, truly yours. Um, so that's it for me. Um, I would just like to, again, say thank you to Mike uh, for this opportunity. Mike, you're great. And I love listening to your podcasts and lots of people around the world do as well. I love the way it's just a slice of your life and that we, we, we get the sense of as a photographer out there just doing what he does, as we all do in our way. But it's kind of it's all life affirming because we're all trying to fit in this stuff that we love in between the other stuff that we do. And you're doing such a great job. You don't earn a penny for it. And uh, bless you. So thank you very much. So that's me over and out. All right, folks, we really hope you enjoyed that, uh, that recording from Anil Mystery uh, about his book, Monochrome. And uh, we really appreciate him sending that in to us. And uh, I, I haven't actually made a photo book, and so I'm not really sure exactly all the you know, process uh, that you have to go through. And it, I, there was some, definitely some stuff in there I learned. So I was glad that you know, somebody that's been through it could actually uh, maybe help spread some information to you fine folks about how to do it. Because, uh, and I may be actually looking into it soon. I've talked about my, uh, my Mexico Beach project I'm kind of thinking about doing. And I've had a lot of listeners uh, kind of poking and prodding at me to, to, to do that and to not, uh, not bail out on it. So uh, I may have, may have to, to do that. You all may have convinced me that that's something I should do. So that would put me in a situation where I would need to know some of the stuff about making a photo book. So uh, very, uh, very good. And um, but so thanks. Uh, thank you so much, Anil, for sending that in. And uh, I hope uh, you guys enjoyed listening to it. Andre, any thoughts? I hope that this is uh, enough motivation for me, but, um, well, I mean, I'm in the process of, like, finishing up this school year and, and moving, but, you know, maybe maybe one day I'll get to it, and I'll, I'll you know, come back to this episode and, and skip forward past all the, all the, bullshit. the banter between Mike and I <laughs> in order to get to Anil's section. Nice, nice. All right, so I guess we're going to go ahead and wrap up this show. And uh, I guess, Andre, you have the solo show this week, right? Are you going to be able to, to, to come through for the folks on a solo show this week? I'm putting the pressure I on I will. You. I gave a little uh, sneak peek of a, of a photo of what I was going to be talking about, uh, kind of a just an overview of, of some stuff that I've gotten in the, in the mail recently. It's actually you know, quite interesting that you know, my, my, my prayers have been answered for, for <laughs> stuff to get sent to me in the mail, uh, but it's also come at a, at a point in time when I've been absent from the podcast, so <laughs> you know, maybe I should be doing that more often. <laughs> but yeah, no, it'll, it'll be good to, to kind of um, do a little, a little mail room episode. 
Right, right. Yeah. And uh, like, well, it's like it was like, like when you weren't here last week, it, it actually enabled me to kind of do a lot of house cleaning and some emails and stuff that we needed to get to and voice recordings and stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, sometimes those solo shows work out really good for that. So there you heard it here, folks. He's not going to bail out. He's he's got the midweek episode this week. So if one doesn't pop up, you send him all the hate mail and then you cut him off from all the supply of, of love gifts you've been sending him in the mail. Cause, uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> but, uh, okay. So let's wrap this one up, Andre. Uh, where can people uh, find your work if anywhere? You know what, Mike, with all, with all this passive aggressive, where can people find your work stuff? I'm inclined to delete the now three images that are on my Instagram and just replace it with stuff about watches. Um, <laughs> If you'd like to see the transition of my Instagram into a into a, a, a timepiece only uh, <laughs> exhibition, you can follow me at Andre on Film. <laughs> I am, I you know I can't edit out that. So uh, <laughs> if you if you put watches up on that thing, I could easily just edit out your your uh, what you say your Instagram pages every week. So uh, you. <laughs> Just, but uh, that's that's not wouldn't be that hard. But what uh, I have I have a, a, a proposal, Mike, a compromise, so to okay, speak. Okay. Um, what if I buy a macro lens, and given the the wonderful you know studio capabilities of Ektachrome that we've been seeing, only post images of my watches <laughs> taken with a macro lens and Ektachrome? Well, you know what, that would be a hell of a lot more film photography than I've seen in the last year. So I'd probably have to let that one slide, man. Or just <laughs> let, let it slide. See what I did there? See that? Oh, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> Oh, good, good. We got a dad joke in, so we we can now wrap up the show. So cool, but uh, <laughs> but all right, you can see uh, you can see my photography on uh, Instagram at Gutterman Photo, on Facebook at Mike Gutterman Photography. You can email this program at negpositives at gmail dot com. You can join the Facebook group, the Negative Positives Film Photography Podcast Facebook group. Now, like, what are we over eighteen hundred members now? I think it's eighteen hundred members unbelievable yeah it literally feels like yesterday that it was like i remember the last time that i had checked the the number of members was like 600 or 700 (laughs) and then in the blink of an eye like we started exchanging messages being like oh my goodness we're almost at 1500 and now it's (laughs) almost 2000 yeah it's crazy. It's, I mean, that's uh, it's awesome, and uh, and it just seems to be kind of really picking up steam. And it's just uh, I have so m- I waste so much time on that on that group, but I'm I'm fine with it. It's it's uh it's better than watching television or something. So, uh, yeah, it's good stuff. But uh, yeah, we definitely especially when The Walking Dead been so shitty, right? <laughs> come on, come on. The Walking Dead's great. It's great. Yeah, I don't know. It's we'll see. It's uh this next week's supposed to be a banner episode, so we'll see what happens. But. Um, yeah. <laughs> know that I'm here ready to to you know record and and, and mics off watching garbage television. <laughs> uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, you're ready to record like once a month, so that's uh <laughs> but uh uh, and I guess the last thing is we do have an Instagram account that is negative positives and you can follow that. And uh, we always post when a new episode is out and try to, I usually try to put up some things, uh, about the episode too. So, um, yeah, so definitely follow the Instagram account, negative positive. So, all right, Andre, it's uh, been great talking to you, man. And, uh, I guess we'll talk again next week and, um, let's wrap this one up. Everybody stay positive and shoot some cool film photos. Cool beans. All right, we'll see everyone. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.